Hello, Pete. Good to have you on the show. This is the Data Storytellers, and uh, we have Pete Williams today. Uh, how are you doing, Pete? Oh, I'm good. Thank you. Yeah, looking forward to chatting. Absolutely. So, Pete, you are a very prominent data transformation leader. You just spoke at Data Talks as well, right? So our audience yeah. would love to know more about your perspective and your experiences in data transformation. So first, just as a, as a quick introduction, can you uh, tell me a little bit about your professional journey as a data transformation leader? How did you get into the, into the data game? <laughs> easy to go down the rabbit hole on this one so pull me out if i get too detailed um i've been doing this for about 25 years in the data industry related to uh, obviously the data leadership part has become later as i've matured as a professional and had you know many experiences which i try and reflect on and learn from um my earliest days i was in computer batch operations overnight operations you know running for a, for a large uk retailer and then from there i, I ended up in bi tools um, so I was, a, I was the company lead on business subjects for a while. I ended up then into uh, a, a tool that we built ourselves as Java was becoming a known language around the turn of the century. Uh, we built this, uh, I think, still very good uh, sort of branch information tool for, for a UK supermarket chain. And then from there, I moved into project management and then change management, um, where I moved into the, I hate saying this, but the business side of the company I was in. So you know, being a customer of tech rather than a deliverer of tech. And I think that's one of the key elements that maybe we'll talk about later in, in terms of understanding how to get things done and having an, an empathetic relationship with the organization you're in. Uh, and then from there, uh, I, I think that was the point where uh, I was doing the change management, reflecting on what I thought I needed to do to convince people that this new, it was a forecasting tool, that this new tool was going to be effective for them. And that's when, looking back over my journey, you know, that's when it all started to coalesce around the power of data, the power of putting data out of systems and combining it into a rich, powerful source that anybody across the organization can consume. And then trying to think about how people consume that, because it's very easy when you're a data professional and you bring something together and you produce an incredible dashboard to throw it to somebody and think they know what to do with it. And then, and they just don't. Sometimes they're, they're like, Floundering. Anyway, I'm sure we'll come to that as well. So and I think from that point, I, I gathered that together and I went to my boss's boss and I said, you know, we're doing this thing here. Um, but I think what you're really missing is a wholesale approach to how to bring data to the department that you're in charge of. Um, and he was a fantastic manager, a guy called Sid Reed in the uh, Marks and Spencer food supply chain, uh, one of the best managers I've had. And he gave me license to go away and pursue this and try and bring it together. And then from there, it went from foods into the kind of an enterprise view, creating more senior roles and, and exerting more leadership and the ability to learn more lessons. Uh, and and from, from there, I think, so this is probably about 2013, 14 to now, um, it's just led to more and more opportunities. You know, I went out by myself. I did some contracting for a while on data strategy. And then I joined my current role at Penguin Random House uh, as a director of data and online. And there's an opportunity there for me to, you know, implement everything that I've learned and, and try and lead that into the organization to help it become data enabled. So that's kind of a, a reasonably whistle-stop tour, if that's enough detail for you. Absolutely. And what are you working on right now at Penguin Random House? Um, it's, it's the date, it's implementation of the data strategy that I wrote. So um, that, I wrote that 15, 18 months ago. And then uh, last January, well, last January, January 2021, was really the opportunity to turn that strategy and that approved business case into delivery. So we've been implementing seven new tools, mm -hmm. uh, a totally new cutting edge modern data stack, all cloud focused, cloud first, and looking to replace all of our on-prem um, you know, sort of databases and our traditional reporting tools with a whole new suite and also bring in um, you know, new people into the team who've used these tools in the past, have an appreciation of the different use cases um, that we can go after and the different ways of working, you know, agile and product management, as opposed to very traditional IT, you know, requirements, documentation, gathering, and then, you know, come back in a year when I built this thing. So we've been heavily on that journey. It's been an amazing 11 months. And, um, you know, this is quite a big weekend for me, um, just coming up now with sort of a final migration of some of these products into, into I guess, production use from um, sort of a beta state. So yeah, it's been it's been an amazing an amazing year. I cannot believe what we achieved in 2021, and I just feel like so excited, set up for 2022 with my new tech, 
with my data coming in in my new robust pipelines and with my new team with a real focus and a, and a different engagement with the organization to that which was possible before. Um, it just, I hope I'm not speaking too soon, but it just feels like 2022 is going to be an amazing year for, for the data team. Mm, excellent. What are you most excited about in, in 2022? What do you see as you know, being like a changed context now from 2021? I think the, the significant thing for me is the ability to deliver on the okay, set an enormous expectations now as somebody <laughs> listens to this, um, is deliver on the dream of data. And the reason I say that is the team that I took over was a BI team and it was producing um, essentially sales and finance reports mm-hmm. like so many of these, of these teams are in in uh, large organizations. But I really wanted to do something different to that and be able to bring data to the rest of the organization. And, you know, one of the lessons I've learned is how easy it is to build an incredible rearview mirror, you know, write a lot of statements, which really document the past and they're no use to you <laughs> going forward. Mm-hmm. And how do you re- change that into uh, a view where actually you're set up to answer questions and your job then is to inspire questions from the organization around you and your flexible, adaptable, you know, highly performant new data stack should be able to answer those in a way that they can use and consume and make better decisions for. So I think because um, I regard data as kind of the horizontal golden thread, you know, it goes through the entire organization. You don't, mm-hmm. if you're doing it right, you're not stuck in one vertical, you're joining the entire organization together. So joining all these things up, I can work across the organization. I've got better technology that means I can have um, reasonable, realistic conversations that I can do something as opposed to documenting pipe dreams and uh, new people and a new style of engagement. It feels like the opportunity to help the entire organization is there at my fingertips. And the opportunity now is to come up with the correct sort of prioritization forum where senior leaders of the organization can you know, kind of look across the opportunity use cases and decide which one we can work on, which is very different to the old world of just producing, you know, straightforward statement reporting around sales and finance, as I said. So that's what really excites me, that we can play a key role in helping that any part of the organization get better. Mm, it sounds like you've done an amazing job of getting to this point, and it does sound exciting just uh, moving into the, new, into the new year. And what were the biggest challenges for you during this transformation so far? What were the bottlenecks? Um, I think challenges are always the same. Mm-hmm. Um, it's... It's helping people understand the value you can bring. Um, what, is, what does data mean? You know, try not to use data in the sort of setup conversations around this, because really what I'm trying to help people understand is the opportunities for insight and for better, faster decision making, which is kind of always my tagline. Um, and people have, people have to understand what you're trying to say about that and understand where data might apply to what they're doing and their set of objectives. So, you know, the first port of call is really just trying to get into somebody else's shoes, be a bit empathetic, understand the, the drivers and the objectives and the strategies of the organization and the departments you try and help, and then work out how what you're doing can support and drive that. So I think that's job one. Um, and until you've done that point, all of the exciting selling the future AI and machine learning type stuff has to sit in second place because until you've got reliable information, well-governed, well-documented and, you know, at your fingertips, then you can't really deploy it in any sort of automated process. So the early part of a data strategy and a data journey is definitely about understanding where the organization is trying to go and the things that are constraining it. Uh, Your next part is to put that into some sort of uh, reasonable roadmap that kind of says, you know, what we need to do, how we're going to do it and where we're going to start. And then you can um, hopefully crack on together if you can um, document a reasonable business case and find the right sponsorship. And my suggestion here is always start small, but be ready to scale quickly. Um, you know, I've, I've done it wrong. I've started small, scale quickly and not been able to support that, which is our horrible base to be. Um, and, and I've been also in the other situation where you start small and then stay small because nobody's interested in what you're doing. So uh, this this opportunity, I think, at the moment, Looks like it's a good one. We've started appropriately. Um, our ambitions are bold, but not unrealistic. And our opportunity to deliver is right there in front of us. So now it's about helping the organization understand the right sort of use cases that generate data-driven demand, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, really interesting. And this whole idea about understanding the organization and putting yourself in the shoes of the other person and who you're trying to help that's usually the most important step. So even uh, uh, from our perspective, 
you know, we always like to focus on the soft skills. We always like to focus on how do you tell powerful stories? And a lot of people come to us and ask like, okay, what do I say? Right. And then even before you decide what, what you say, right. It's all about the audience. It's all about that empathy, the strategic and tactical empathy. So I guess the golden question is, how do you do that? How do you understand the organization? What has been your best practice? How do you approach this? When you want to understand the business, what steps are you taking first? <laughs> and of course, let's, let's just say right now, this is not the same for every organization. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let's, let's look for some sort of generic pointers here. Cause it, if you try and go in with one framework, one of the dangers of frameworks is you've only got one way of engaging. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if that doesn't work, you're kind of lost. So I don't rely on a framework. I, I try and rely on my experiences. Um, and do you know what? Some of the best examples I've had are of really strong software salesmen coming to me and there's some really fabulous guys so um it's a guy at salesforce now who wasn't when i first met him um and they would come in and, and demonstrate like use case opportunities based on values in our agms and our sort of corporate accounts that i'd never looked at because i was an employee but you know how you can turn a story out of your declared numbers uh and i was like how do you know this stuff how where's it coming from um but it's because that's what they're taught to do you know is dissect the external view of the company and then overlay their opportunities. And I guess I try to learn a little bit from that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that there is documented information. There are strategic documents uh, inside an organization. Not always easy to find, um, but there are. And your job, I think, is to make sure that you're finding an opportunity that aligns to those. Um, that, you know, that I always say that one of the things you have to solve is a problem somebody cares about. Because you can solve a problem that's interesting to you for your technology use case. But if nobody's interested in what you provided, it's just a curiosity. You know, it's a sideshow. Um, and unless you can you know, solve a problem somebody cares about, i.e. they'll sponsor you in terms of budget and air cover from senior parts of the organization, time and attention if you need it. If you need to gloss over your data, they've got people who can explain what they're trying to do and what that really means. Um, and then when you've solved that problem with them, rely on them to sell that into the organization, you know, not not in sort of a direct, you know, this is the other side of software vendor sales, isn't it? Not, not trying to like run across the organization, um, selling it to everybody else, but rely on the strength of what you've done from a strong, consistent message of, you know, I tried this, it worked, I've been successful because I think other parts of the organization pick up on that. And, you know, this is something that I've learned through my entire, I guess, data leadership career, but also before that at a more junior position, when you're trying to influence at a different level, the expectations and what you need to do are always the same. You know, what does the other person need from you? Because so often a technology department can be so interested in what it's got its fingertips on and what it thinks it can offer, but that's not necessarily what's being asked for. And quite often that gets lost a bit in translation. You know, I've seen this happen with, with reporting tools. You know, you get hold of a new one. It's the evolution from the old thing. And you've gone from grids of numbers to wild diagrams and colors and shapes. And then you put that in front, of you, in front of somebody and you go, look at what you can do with this. Look at the amount of things I can put on there. And the other person can't consume it because although you've put seven different you know, parameters of data inside a single chart, people don't know how to apply that to the decisions they're trying to make in an organization. Uh, and I learned this around 2000 with the tool that I was um, building for the, for the UK supermarket because you know, it had been out there for a year. It was revolutionary information in the organization. But people would look at it, but they wouldn't know what to do with it. It would it almost, you know, the phrase analysis paralysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was exactly that. It's like, I've got this information, but I don't know how to action anything on it in order to drive outcomes. And I think that's, that's the other part that you have to be really conscious of is how is somebody going to use what you're creating to change, um, you know, their success factors and then the organizational success factors. So uh, I feel like I'm talking at you for quite a long time on this one, but really it is about staying close to the people you're trying to deliver with and finding somebody that's, that's got a use case, which is interesting and relevant and possible and get that one done and do it well, because that gives you license to carry on. If you haven't got an early, an early success factor, then you're probably not going to get another one. <laughs> it's going to be really hard to sell what you do because you haven't delivered Mm, absolutely. No, th- this is really good stuff. And I have so many questions. So uh, you mentioned that uh, one way to understand and see and investigate these problems that people care about would be, for example, internal documents. How important do you think uh, building personal relationships 
with the key stakeholders are. Is that your go-to strategy maybe? Do you, have you used this intensively just to build relationships and then leverage those relationships to find out some of those problems? Because I know that there are different approaches to that. And this is a really interesting point that you're making that maybe do some more passive research first and come with those. But uh, how intensively have, have you leveraged your personal relationships within businesses? That, that is key for me. Um, you know, I... I don't know how you describe this one, so forgive me. Um, but I think you have to be engaging and empathetic with people. Mm-hmm. And there's a really fine line between offering solutions and you can't do that until you understand their problems. You know, one of the terrible, terrible problems I've seen in technology over the last 25 years is rocking up to somebody and saying, this will solve all your problems before you've asked them the challenges they've got. And that gets you a terrible reputation. You know, I've seen um, technology departments or you know, before data became a thing, technology kind of referred to as, you know, the ivory tower or mm. elitist, um, because quite often they're approaching with principles and, and ideas that just are not always practical in the real world because they're, because they're not based on the experience of the person you're trying to do something for. They're based on what you saw at a conference and things really exciting and you want to bring it forward. So I think you have to leverage your relationships. And I've tried to structure my, my department like this as well. So I've, I've split my roles up from what was quite a traditional, I think, BI development function. And I've created distinct specialisms. So I've got a data engineering pillar. I've got a um, visualization pillar and I've got a data governance pillar. And at the top of each of those pillars, I've implemented the role of product manager. So I, I know this is quite fashionable. I see more and more of these coming up in, in sort of LinkedIn feeds and, and recruitment profiles, but I've tried to put a product manager at the top of these functions because I want them bought into what they're trying to deliver for the organization. So their relationship with the departments they're trying to serve is uh, fundamental in terms of defining the strategy for the function that they're in charge of. Because, you know, our tools shouldn't develop if they don't offer the organization more capability. And underneath them, I've put a technical lead who should have you know, all of the technical capability to transfer the strategy into actual technical and architectural deliverables. And I've deliberately done that as an attempt to try and break away from a role that combines both of those, which I think is what was in place before. So you'd have somebody who was trying to engage the organization and trying to be the technical lead and not really having the, the sort of bandwidth or developed skills to be able to do both of those. Um, you know, you'd always be compromised in that position. So I've tried to deliberately separate them out and have engagement with technical capability and then technical capability with engagement. And the join of those two um, roles together, I'm hoping, gives me a, a really business-focused strategy for the area and a really um, demonstrable technical deliverable roadmap that meets those objectives. <clears throat> so th- that's the way I see those things um, sort of functioning. And that's, I think, as I've gone through my career, I started out as a technician I rapidly found out that although I could do the technical stuff, I was a lot more interested in the outcomes and the strategy. And I pushed myself towards that. Um, so trying to remain like data competent, this is my phrase at the moment, data competent and people excellent, as opposed to data excellent and people competent. Uh, this is really good. I'm, I'm, I'm writing this down. So being da- staying data competent and being people excellent. And the, an interesting question. So just so I understand it correctly. So your product managers uh, are basically translators between the, the business needs and the business and the technical teams, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the technical team reports to them. And you know, the, the, the business related strategy, you know, what we're trying to help the business do is what gets translated down into technical deliverables. That's exactly right. Okay, fantastic. And then how do you... Uh, uh, so? How do you prioritize who you need to speak to within the business? So uh, why I'm asking this question is because when you're, uh, another question I will have is definitely about what kind of questions do you think are best to ask? Uh, but first of all, when you draw these boundaries and you set these priorities, among the, amongst those priorities, how do you decide who to speak to? Do you have a go-to strategy with regards to that? Um, not at the start. I think at the start, you should talk to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, get a really rich understanding of the of the whole environment that you're in. I mean, if you're joining a team which has got some key relationships, owns some key systems, or, or has some key deliverables, then I mean, obviously you've got to you've got to really understand what those um, key relationships are all about, and, and understand those particularly 
more than necessarily some of the others. But at the end of the day, I think getting the widest picture is what's important. And uh, I say that because I refer back to that, that data is the golden thread thing that I talk mm-hmm. about, you know, the horizontal join, because quite often businesses are, are so engaged in delivering superbly within their own vertical silo, within, within their set of objectives, they don't necessarily see or understand the impact that they have up or downstream of them. And I think your opportunity as the data person where, you know, you've got hold of the thread, you're not tied to a department, is to look at where that uh, external influence might actually help you. So is there a step further up or downstream or maybe at a tangent who uses data or has some information that could inform what you're trying to achieve and that just hasn't been visible before because, you know, data isn't something that you can see until it appears on a screen somewhere. But we know that it's the invisible sort of DNA of the organization. And sometimes it's the, it's the person who's specializing in data who's able to spot those and bring them together. So I think you owe it to yourself um, to try and meet as many people as possible and understand how that map might join up. But some of those people you might talk to more often than others. Mm, very interesting. I will have a, a more strategic big picture question about people excellence, as you said. Uh, but uh, before we uh, before we go there, um, just a little bit of a, a tactical insight there. Um, I'm not sure if 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 you uh, have a specific approach to this, but once you find that person, once you find those people who you think are key players, right? Um, how do you approach them? Because there are different schools of thought in this too, right? Uh, but uh, how do you approach them? How do you reach out to them? And how do you uh, approach that conversation in general? What kind of questions do you ask them? Uh, I guess open questions, if, if that's not too easy to cop out. Mm-hmm. Because of what I'm trying to understand is, you know, uh, what, what their objectives are and what are their constraints to, to being successful? What are the opportunities they would like to go for and just can't? Particularly, what do they what, what do they know about their customer? You know, the person who takes services from that person or that function, what do they want to know about about who consumes from them? Um, and I guess from there, it, it all spins out. I'm trying not to sit in and offer solutions. In certainly in the first meeting or two, I'm just mm-hmm. trying to get to know the person and trying to be <laughs> a counselor. I don't know if that's the right word. Mm-hmm. I hope nobody ever listens to this podcast. Um, <laughs> but really, I just. I want people to feel like I, they can offload onto me. And some of the best data workshops I've held um, are, are the ones where you just say to people, here's some post-its, here's a whiteboard, just put up there every single frustration you've got. And then, you know, the sort of typical post-it exercise of boiling that down into genres and themes and groups, and then drilling down into the ones that people say are the most important to them can get you a long way um, towards trying to work out what you could work on first and whether it's worth working on it and whether it's feasible to work on, because there's no point chasing somebody down that's not feasible was your first opportunity. So, so I guess open questions, listening more than speaking. Um, I think you have to establish a little bit of credibility if you can. If you've got some experience in the space or you've seen something similar, it's helpful to, to just, I guess, show that you understand a bit of the language that's being used. Um, but if you don't, then don't try and assume. I'm a terrible assumer sometimes. Sometimes I join dots that aren't there. So, you know, I have to back myself out of that and make sure that I'm really listening properly uh, in order to try and string this together. And I would also say don't try and hold that relationship only to yourself. You know, I talked about these um, sort of strategic engagement roles, the product manager roles that I'm creating in, in this team based on my experience of, you know, previous operations. And so I don't want to hold a relationship. I want these people to be able to engage in those conversations as well, because at some point I will be a blocker. Um, but these people will be the ones who are actually trying to deliver what's being talked about in these conversations. So I see myself opening the door, getting the, the sort of relationship and the, I guess, the data function onto the table and then trying to bring other people in who can actually start to hold the more detailed conversations and have a more frequent communication set because uh, they'll be only the delivery of the items against them. Mm-hmm. And at this stage of the whole process, how important, um, from your perspective, is the building of trust, right? And the, just the question of trust comes up a lot during uh, uh, during our conversations, also at our virtual roundtables. And speaking of our virtual roundtables, can completely relate to this therapeutic effect of people just being able to share, right? And, uh, it, it's it's full of positive emotion, and it actually kind of leads to the establishment of trust as well. But uh, if you have a few thoughts on the importance of trust and how you leverage trust over your uh, uh, career, that would be very helpful. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that about the roundtables. We've we've had some people walk out of these data workshops, and these were cathartic. You know, they've never had anybody or any opportunity to to express the, some of these frustrations in the past. Um, and we won't be able to solve all of them, but getting them out is helpful for people and, on, and onto a log somewhere. And it's surprising actually how often what you spot is very common themes across the organisation. Um, that you can attempt to try and solve to help people get get better faster. You know, um, in terms of trust, uh, trust is fundamental. Uh, I think if you're talking at a senior level of the organisation, sometimes people will be sharing confidential information with you. So if they don't feel they can do that about their strategic plans or what's really holding them back, then you're not going to get the answers you need to be able to help that person. So you know, there's an establishment of trust there. There's got to be trust that you're going to be able to deliver something. You know, we can all have fun conversations about what's wrong. Um, but ultimately, uh, senior people are trying to run large parts of organizations typically, and they haven't got all day to spend talking about you just to make themselves feel better. So they need to have an appreciation that what you're talking about, if you're going to come and talk about solutions, is something that they can actually buy into, that they can start to make some plans against, and that they can see an expected delivery on the horizon. So I think you have to establish you know, credibility, I guess, uh, and then your trust comes from having a credible option there. Sometimes it's about um, what you know. So if you're coming in as the expert, as opposed to, as opposed to the, uh, I guess, the innocent, if I'm going to use an, an easy phrase where you're gathering information, if you're coming in as an expert, then I think quite quickly you've got to be able to demonstrate your knowledge of similar solutions um, in order that that you're, you're starting off on the same foot. You know, I have this, I've had quite a lot of experience in finance um, departments in my last three or four roles. I am not an accountant. <laughs> I'm terrible with numbers. So do not get the impression that I'm any sort of finance savant. But I've talked and worked with a lot of finance teams. And so quite often the challenges that of the finance department, which is pretty similar across most companies, are things that I can relate to and I can express, um, you know, frustrations that I've seen in the past. And I think that helps you in a conversation because it's like, oh, this person knows what I'm talking about. You know, they've got an appreciation for what might be a problem. Uh, and therefore, there's some trust. And if I open up a bit, then maybe a solution will be forthcoming. So I think, you know, I, I think trust is fundamental. And that as a, as a senior leader, as a data leader, you have to be able to build that, particularly people who don't understand what you're talking about. So, you know, there's got to be a bit of trust that even if I don't totally get this data game, it's going to deliver something that's going to be helpful to me in my department. Mm, absolutely. It's almost as if being people excellent is uh, analogous with the ability to build trust, right? Because uh, at the end of the day, relationships are built on trust. That's, the, that's also the currency of leadership, right? Yeah. Um, really interesting. So uh, with you, when you mentioned that uh, a process that you have of, uh, in the first two meetings, when you are trying to understand someone and you try to understand these strategic priorities and where you should, what you should emphasize and what kind of solution you would be able to offer this person that will have a strong business impact. So first two meetings is just finding out what they are about, getting them to offload on you and having the therapeutic effect. So uh, uh, what happens after them? So when you are trying to think about the solutions that you want offer them uh, uh what is your process in that and how do you propose that and i'm trying to maybe hear hear some of your insights about storytelling and presenting the solution right yeah yeah that's a much harder question mm-hmm. <laughs> presenting the solution back i mean i'm a big fan of storytelling you know particularly in my current role but i've always found the power of the anecdote is much more powerful than, than the actual logic mm-hmm. you know if you can say yeah oh, but do you remember when this guy did that and it cost the company x um it, that resonates through history in an organization so much more than, than a spreadsheet that showed a 3% improvement. So, um, yeah, I, I'm a big fan of storytelling and anecdotes. I guess, I guess when I'm, when I'm trying to do what, what you're asking there, I'm trying to play back what I've heard. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the key things I think is, you know, we spent some time together and you've expressed frustrations You've looked for a solution that might come from a from a data um, system or or um, or system again, and from that, I, I guess you're trying to play back the the thorough understanding of what they said to you, an appreciation of how that lands in what's possible, and then a potential roadmap on a way forward, and then an outcome that you can try and achieve together. Because, you know, this also works for me, because if I'm going to be able to generate investment 
um, from the organization, they need to see some demonstrable outcome. They want to see a measurable, deliverable benefit at the end of it. And the, the storytelling has to lead to something like that. Uh, I remember being at a, a large presentation a number of years ago now about all of the sort of most significant organizations in the world that we all know in the tech space. And the, the sort of J shape um, they've all gone through in terms of their organizational growth as they've understood what they're really about and they pivot and all of a sudden it all takes off because they finally understand their why and then they're smacking off through the atmosphere and, and devouring the world. And I think one of the large organizations talked about the where they'd engage Pixar storytelling um, to try and find that pivot. And for me, that was a really powerful message because it kind of expressed that all stories have a pretty common framework. And I used this in a presentation recently. I don't think I did it justice, to be honest with you. But um, you need to be able to express that story where you know there's a, there's a shared appreciation of what the problem is. There's a plot that kind of takes you through a solution. And then there's a happy outcome where everything's resolved and people, people walk away in great success, you know, set you up for book two. And I think uh, when you're doing that, that's kind of how you need to present what, what it is that you're going to do with the department that you're talking to, because they need to agree the common ground, understand the challenges together, sort of go through the challenge, the organ you know, the, the Kubler-Ross change curve, the bit that's really uncomfortable down the bottom, and then come out and, and see the success factors in the end. So I do try and play back consciously into that sort of shape of a story. And I think that's how all strategy decks have got to be written. You know, where do you want to be? What's stopping you get there? Here's how we get there and then get there together. Mm, fantastic. So this is really good. I always enjoy these kind of tactical rundowns on the, on, on the big picture item. Uh, and now maybe uh, taking a step back. So uh, something that's always being thrown around and talked about, right, is data-drivenness, how to create a data-driven organization and how to instill a data-driven culture. Now, it, it, what, what we've observed over the years that uh, oftentimes, unfortunately, these phrases uh, can almost lose their meaning, right? It's, always, it's almost like a lot of people are chasing a mirage with these. So you are the expert. Um, uh, it's a simple question. It might have uh, like a, a difficult answer. But what is data-drivenness from your perspective? What is a data-driven organization? And what does it mean to have a data-driven culture? <laughs> data-drivenness is a new one on me. Um, <laughs> And if I could just like sideline briefly, sure. I think what gets really painful is when people start trying to dissect the phrase data driven. You know, mm-hmm. it's not really data driven. Maybe it's data enabled. Maybe it's empowered. I think at the end of the day, what you're really saying is the organization that you're trying to help understands the power of measurement of easier access to more information in order to make better, faster decisions and therefore in order to achieve strategies and growth. Um, so, and all you want is everybody in the organization to be able to do that. And I think the, the key things are understand what the sort of breakdown of roles inside the organization and what each of those roles need to be able to do. Um, I had this model called the Epic Pyramid in the past um, where I, and, and I'm not trying to get it right. I think I had experts at the top. It was a very small number of experts in the organization who need to be able to create information you know, from new disparate sources, possibly from outside the organization. And I think that's where data science really comes in. And that's what I was trying to introduce to the organization at the time. Um, and then I had um, sort of power users, sort of second down. So people who are really powerful with the current information set, joining sets from across the organization. And then I had an I, I'm trying to spell it out, E-P-I. So they were information users and they were people who were typically like just refreshing um, information sets. So being able to understand what they wanted, where it was, but how to get to it quickly. And then a large scale C at the bottom, which is the mass of the organization, which was what I call consumers. People who need to be able to access and read information and act on it, but they're not trying to change it in any way. And the reason I created this model was to try and uh, understand the training needs of the organization. Now, how many people was I expecting to be in each slice? And what did they need from me in order to be able to be successful. And from this, I was trying to generate data literacy. So uh, it was clear to me that the consumers are most of the organization. And let's not assume these are junior people, because actually I think most senior people right at the top are actually consumers in this model, because they're not sitting there writing SQL or Python at their desk, 
while um, while the organization around them is thriving. These people are out there making decisions and talking to people and, un- and trying to understand the bigger market picture. So they just need access to information. And in the same way, you know, the pinnacle of the pyramid, the data science people don't typically need to be at mass across the organization because the models and the experimentation are small and, and service the organization. So out of all that, understanding those different layers, I think you can then understand what you need to bring to each of the people. And do they need technical training? Do they just need to know where to go to find data? And do they need to know how to understand data if it's presented in different ways? And I think this is where data storytelling joins up. Because you know, if your expression is through a modern visualization tool set, then it depends who's building the report for you. But if they've gone for a scatter plot or a histogram or a Sankey chart, Knowing how to interpret that and see the message within it um, is a challenge for the consumer of that. And I had this phrase a while ago, which was, and I may not be paraphrasing this quite correctly, um, don't try and get people to make data-driven decisions. Um, because if you rock up to somebody and say, I'm going to help you be data-driven, they'll run a mile. Um, but your job, I think, is to understand the questions that are being asked, understand the data that you've got available, work together so that actually data-driven decisions are actually common sense. Because what you're really trying to do is codify the decisions that somebody would take when they get the data into the tool set so that you're shortcutting the analysis part and giving people the common sense decision to make, which might be, here's the hold in the market. That's the product I need to sell next. This is the price I should be charging. And they all, everybody wants to get to that point where they're an expert commercial professional, but they've all got their own methods of doing it. And this is why sitting alongside um, the the people you're trying to help and watching how they make decisions and then bringing that back and build it back into the tool set using the power of the system and the power of data to then feed them back the answers so that, you know, they don't spend their time with with a ruler and a pen and an Excel spreadsheet trying to take numbers and combine them and do something else with it. The answer is there. And as you become more sophisticated, that comes into exception reporting so that you only see the things you need to work on. And if you get it really good, it comes into predictive reporting where you end up saying to people, this is uh, this is what's going to happen next or this is what you need to do next in order to drive something. You know, my dream is to come to offer somebody a system uh, where they can kind of type in, you know, I've been given a 10 percent sales target. What do I do? And using the power of machine learning over you know historical data, you know, you've got three options. You know, one is to set a price increase of this much. Uh, one is to drive volume. So the price has to be this, but you've got to sell this many more. Or you can undertake a marketing campaign like this one you did in February 2013, because that drove sales by 12%. You can probably get to 10 from that. And, and being able to offer out a, a series of solution scenarios, which will only come from understanding what people have done with the data in the first place. So I don't know if I'm asking you a question. I'm having a good time talking about it. But. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having a good time too. And, and, and absolutely. So you've been answering because the question, and it's, it's, a, it's a surprising situation that when we ask data leaders, these big companies, what is data-drivenness or what does it mean to be data-driven, right? We actually get a lot of times different answers, right? Yeah. So, and and um, th- this is great. So you actually broke it down quite well in a, in a very granular way of what does it mean to be data-driven and how does it look like? Um, what do you think are the biggest challenges challenges for leaders today, right? When you try to achieve that, what do you see as the as the bottleneck, as the main points of friction in in achieving that? <laughs> One of my biggest personal problems is um, the weight of expectation. Because I'm quite passionate about my subject and I like to evangelize on it, uh, I can set up enormous expectations that can be challenging to deliver. Um, you know, either through time or just resources or whatever it is, uh, you have to excite enough to get going and then control enough not to be consumed by not being able to deliver against the, the incredible excitement you've generated because it quickly fades. Um, and, and so you need to be able to keep that excitement level high while you scrabble around for the answer and get people on, on, underway. Um, so other challenges I think it all comes down to um, relationships and expectations, in my opinion. It's, it's always about, have you found the right people? Have you understood the question? Have you found something that they care about solving and that they're willing to put time into solving together with you? Can you solve it? You know, Do you have the right people? Do you have the right data? And can you get going? Can you answer the question? 
can you deliver the solution in good time? And can the person make a difference with it and then be willing to sell it on your behalf uh, at the back end in order that you can go again with another part of the organization? Because it always has to turn into a flywheel. You know, I've I've experienced this in a, a couple of different situations where you get going, everybody's excited, but rapidly, you know, your expensive new hires from the, the new um, sexiest job of the 21st century end of the market, where salaries are going crazy as they are right now for data engineers and data scientists, you quickly become a very visible item on a balance sheet somewhere. And people start saying, what am I getting for this? Um, and so you have to be able to track your value um, and drag benefit from the things you're delivering and being able to show that, you know, the, this is the this is the value that having this capability is adding to an organization. And it's a really challenging thing to do. You know, I've seen a number of different people attempt to have a go at the value of your data as an asset or putting an asset value against your data pipelines and, and things like that. It's really challenging. Um, and people don't necessarily see it as, as real science, as real accounting, because you're kind of making stuff up. But it, it genuinely, you genuinely have to be able to demonstrate the value you're bringing because at some point you, you could well become a target. And how do you go from, from a cost center to a profit center? You know, delivering value is a, is a challenging thing that's on your neck as a, as a senior leader, I think. So that's, a, that's another challenge is how to be obviously, um, obviously adding to the organization and not become a drain on the organization. Mm-hmm. As they say, heavy, heavy lies the crown as a uh, as a leader for sure. And <laughs> and yes, and the spotlight comes at a price. It seems um, absolutely it does. Yeah. And uh, from your perspective, so that there's this question about okay, so I'm a leader. I kind of understand the priorities. I kind of have a tactical roadmap, even to reach out to the right people, ask the right questions, pre- like present the right solutions. If we take a step back. And we actually focus on you guys as leaders. One thing that, that, that kept coming up during even our roundtables and also during the, these podcasts are what we call the cardinal virtues of the, of the data leader. You know, it's just like an old concept, you know, going back to hundreds of years, uh, the, the question of virtue. But what we found is that virtues tend to be very practical. They have immense practical benefits, right? So if you just reflect on your own career, the people that you worked with, uh, people in leadership positions who uh, had this kind of leadership gravitas, around them and you know things just tend to happen they are pleasant to be around people tend to follow them what kind of virtues emerge in your mind when you think about that ideal data transformation leader are there any qualities that come to mind i think there are some there are some data qualities Mm -hmm. and there are some leader qualities Mm -hmm. um but i don't think the list is extensive Mm. so you know i've already used my phrase data competent people excellent so i think the first thing is to be a data leader, you don't have to be a data rocket scientist. I mean, you can be. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a barrier to entry, but you don't have to be. <clears throat> it's more important that you understand the power of data and, and something about how you gather, assemble, store, process, you know, ELT versus ETL. Just these concepts have to mean something to you in order to have a realistic conversation with people. But I don't think you need to be sitting there coding every day to be a data leader. I think if you are... Then, then maybe you're not finding the time to do the other things that a, a leader has to do. I think out of that, you know, having dealt with data, I think one of the benefits that I talk about and that I feel I've got, you know, I talked in uh, earlier in this in this um, session around change management and really being able to understand that the change curve, the the concept of change, what it means to people, how you shift culture. Uh, what people are going to feel about it, how you deal with that, the nature of your communications and the importance of talking to people. And I found is not leaving gaps because <laughs> I never quite understand this. And I've seen this so many times in the past. An organization will trust its people to make multi-million pound decisions on a daily basis, but then it won't trust them with quite simple concepts that they will be able to join the dots on, but you're not willing to fill the gap in for some reason that you just don't want to share that information yet. And when you're in that situation, all of your smart people are joining those dots for you. You know, they're doing this in their head. They know exactly where they think you're going, which may not be the same place. But if you don't understand the journey that they're on, um, you won't be able to bring them back to your journey or doing so will be incredibly painful. So I think there's a to be an authentic leader is to talk as much as you can about the plans you've got 
in as much as you're able to do so, but be clear and open and um, I guess consistent with the people that you're working with in order to get to that point. Um, so, you know, data competent, I think, um, having transformation experience because leaders are about transforming, they're not about line management, um, being, being approachable, good communication skills, I think are fundamental. And I look to every senior leader um, for the elevator pitch. You know, I always think if, I, if I'm stuck in um, an elevator with a senior leader and they can't give me something in 30 seconds, that's going to make me get back to my desk and go, come on, I really want to be part of this then I think you're missing something because I think if you're going to be a leader, you have to lead. And that doesn't mean you're all um, blood and swords and, you know, sort of Roman type leadership, but there has to be something that sets you apart in terms of charismatic communication and clear expression of a goal that everybody can get behind. So I think that's fundamental. And for data, you know, there are all sorts of opportunities in that because you're driving business outcomes. You're trying to help business strategy come to life and be successful. Uh, and for your people below you, um, you know, the function you're building, um, that's an exciting journey. And you should be able to express that. And everybody should be really excited to be on that journey. And for the people you're helping, you know, you are hopefully, you know, not on a white horse. You're coming to help them solve problems that they've had and that are constraining them from being successful. So you should be able to pull this together into a story that people will want to hear and will want to get behind. And if you're talking to a leader who can't do that for you, no matter what they're leading on, then I think there's something missing. Mm, very interesting. And uh, what always comes up in these conversations, uh, interestingly enough, is there's this uh, kind of uh, holy trinity of virtues um, <laughs> when it comes to, to leadership. And one, one thing that always comes up is humility. The other is uh, courage in a way. And the third one is patience, so patient persistence, right? And not necessarily in a way that, oh, yeah, you need to be the most humble person in the world or you need to be, you know, the most most courageous leader, but that those are very important kind of uh, um, uh, elements of leadership. And then everyone's personal makeup uh, determines their own leadership style, right? So what is your leadership style, you think, when it comes to, you know, uh, for example, being humble, which is being open and uh, the willingness to be wrong or Maybe if you're if you're a more assertive leader, then you like to emphasize that or being courageous. You guys are the purveyors of truth ultimately in the business, right? And then that there is this burden of maybe sometimes proclaiming that truth even when it's uncomfortable and pointing to things that people don't want to acknowledge, right? And maybe bringing value through that. And then the whole idea of patience, well, are you focusing on some quick wins and generate momentum that way? Or maybe you're playing the, the long game and you're planting seeds. So if you reflect on your, uh, your personal career, uh, um, how do you think you, uh, uh, you, you kind of stack up on those qualities in terms of humility, courage, and, um, uh, and patience? Wow. Uh, so I'm self-judging myself against three big prisons waiting to be shot down. Um, uh, good question. I mean, I, I've been called courageous, you know, in those um, sort of team workshops or um, sort of skills assessments. I've been called courageous around data simply because uh, I believe that you have to be persistent. And going back and trying to resell your message can, in some people's eyes, be seen as courageous, particularly if you've been slapped down. Um, and you're trying to, um, I guess, make the make the value and the opportunity clear. It means you have to go back again and again, possibly from a different angle. So, I think, I think I could be regarded as courageous in that respect. Or certainly, as I said, I've been I've been given that tag before. So, yeah, I think that's that's a good one. Patience. <laughs> um, it's funny. I used that on a slide on Wednesday. I said you have to be patient when you're starting a data program. I'm, I'm always way too excited with data because I, my experience and my, I, I guess, immersion in the industry talks about the opportunities and why you should get going on it. So I always want to run faster than the organization will possibly allow me, no matter where I am. Um, so I'm not, I'm not as patient as I should be or could be because I want to get started. And, but sometimes I think the friction that comes from that energy is what you really need. Because, you know, you could be too patient and actually realize that you're stagnating and the organization is not seizing the opportunity to make a decision around you. Now, one way or the other, you know, if it doesn't want to do it, fine. You know, and you can choose to either be there 
or pack up your bags and move on and try and do it somewhere else. But you can be patient to a point, but decisions have to be made and, and action has to be seen uh, from both sides of the people involved in, in the data opportunity. So I think I am patient, um, but really I'm looking for an opening and, and assessing where the next opportunity to you know, leverage the story and try and get some buy-in is, is really going to come from. And that could be with the same person, or it could be by trying to build a coalition of the willing that will then help you converge on that person, you know, through messages, through other channels, you know, sort of um, change management approaches to getting messages to the people you want to hear them. And what was the last one? Humility. Um, I, I don't know how I can express humility when I've just talked about myself for 40 minutes. <laughs> so. Um, Fair enough. <laughs> I, I try not. I try not to be. This is the challenge I expressed earlier. I, oh, I think I did anyway. When, when you when you join an organisation um, in a role, particularly a senior role, you're being appointed because you've got some knowledge and some expertise about what you're doing. Otherwise, they wouldn't bring you in to lead on something. And it's really hard. It's a very hard balance to work out how you can express and deploy your knowledge, your value, the experiences you've had. Um, without looking like you're trying to be the noble in the room, you know, to be too patronising. And and uh, that's I, I struggle with that one, to be totally honest with you, because quite often if I've seen things go wrong, particularly large-scale um, transformation projects, uh, <laughs> I've been at the sharp end of those throughout my career and they haven't always gone well, but uh, there have been lots of learnings that come from not always going so well. You know, you have to fail to learn, don't you? And being able to express those without pulling the rug from under somebody else is is a challenging communication piece, I think. Um, and I don't think I always get that right. But I think it's important to speak up if you've got knowledge as well um, and work out how somebody could deploy that on your behalf. Great. Well, Pete, look, this has been amazing. So thank you very much for your insights. And I will have to let you go, even though I don't want to, because we only have two... <laughs> even though we, we uh, had a great conversation. So um, the final question uh, before I do let you go. So if you could give just one piece of advice uh, to, the, uh, uh, to the data leaders of the future, right? One thing to keep in mind and prioritize, uh, what would that be? What would be uh, that personal recommendation that you have based on the, the breadth of experience that you have? <laughs> I guess it would be, uh, don't forget who you're doing it for. There, I don't think there's any company out there that says, just do data for fun. We need to build data. You're always doing data for the benefit of the organization and to help people in the organization be successful. So um, your data program is not about you heading out, buying uh, incredible technology, you know, sourcing the best data scientists. I mean, that, that may well be what you need to do eventually. But what you're really doing is delivering on behalf of somebody else in the organization in order that they can be more successful. So don't ever lose sight, I think, of the fact that you're you're empowering them. You're not building yourself. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Pete. This uh, was very informative. I took a bunch of notes, and I'm sure our audience will learn a lot from this conversation. And we hope to have you back on the show at some point. Thank you very much. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> 